9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Uh, also coming maybe from New York City, we have uh, one of our uh, panel today, Max Boot. Are you in New York City, Max Boot of the Washington yeah. Post? New York, New York. New York, New York. In Washington, D.C., we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center uh, and so much else. How are you, Rosa? I'm very well, David. Um, and we have with us um, Mary Trump, our friend who is the author of Too Much and Never Enough and is also beginning work on a new book. Where are you, Mary? Unfortunately, I'm on Long Island. Wow. Wow. That's, that's a little harsh, but I do understand. No I do I understand. Yeah, no, I understand what you mean by that. Uh, and the smartest of all of us who's in sunny California amidst um, the vineyards and whatever else is in sunny California, um, Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. And hello, my friends. Uh, it is good to have all of you with us here. Um, in keeping with our uh, general focus of getting on with life and not bogging ourselves down in the same arguments of the past four years, um, I thought I might uh, turn the conversation to a broader issue that has many facets, and that is, how do you get over um, the past four years? You know, uh, how do you get over, and you'll forgive me for this, Mary, you know, post-Trump stress disorder, um, and I don't mean that merely in terms of sort of a national trauma, but also, um, you know, how do you recover from it in foreign policy? How do you recover from it politically? How do you, you know, we've got a lot of healing to do. Uh, and Mary, uh, let me start with you because you're actually a professional healer. Um, and uh, also it was something about you that, that made me think about this because I saw that you had signed a contract to do another book. Um, uh, uh, and it's about our national trauma, it, se it seemed to me. Um, it was a little, you know, unnerving for me because you're doing it for St. Martin's who published my little book. And they, of course, instantly forgot it with the prospect of another Mary Trump book selling a billion copies. <laughs> um, my book will now be like holding up short desk legs in the in, in at the offices at St. Martin's. But you know, what is you know, as 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 somebody who does focus on trauma and, and healing, what do you think the United States has has got to grapple with here um, in terms of priorities? Yeah, that is the question, isn't it? Um, unfortunately we're going to have to be grappling with a lot of things at the same time. As you said, in general, uh, pretty much everything that's gone wrong in the last four years. But in terms of the what I'm focusing on, there are it's so complex uh, because just in in the context of the the last four years and particularly the last year, we're dealing with very different um, parts of the population who've been very differently affected by the interconnected crises of COVID-19 and the economic fallout from that. You know, we have 
some of us who understand what's been going on, who acknowledge it, who feel completely betrayed um, by our government, which sometimes people forget doesn't just represent us, but actually is us. And then we have another part of the population uh, that refuses to acknowledge any of that. Uh, so um, it's going to be incredibly tricky uh, for a lot of reasons, because we're going to have to meet people in very different levels of experience and also a very different um, understand different different level of understanding what actually is going on and has been done to them and what we've all suffered uh whether we acknowledge it or not uh but to to start where i'm starting is uh at the beginning because one of the reasons we have become a country that's so susceptible to somebody like donald uh is because we have never grappled with the traumas in which this country was born um, we not only we haven't uh, we haven't atoned for them, we have barely acknowledged them. So by uh, and I'm simplifying, of course, but by not never having held powerful, corrupt people accountable, starting with Robert E. Lee, we have allowed um, other transgressions to occur that are never uh, held to account. And it's another reason we've ended up with somebody like Donald, because if you don't hold people accountable for their crimes, then the next person comes along and just pushes the envelope even farther. So um, that puts us in a very vulnerable situation. What I'm hoping is that once the Biden administration comes in, some things will normalize right away. You know, you're going to have a, a significant minority of the population that's going to say, well, you know, he's my president. I didn't vote for him, but that's how it works. And I think that will happen to some degree in how the, the country is perceived internationally. But um, the biggest problem is that what I'm talking about is something that hasn't even happened yet. We're not going to know how bad the problem is in terms of our mental health and how it's been adversely affected by the stressors of the last year in particular until we get through uh, COVID. And that's what concerns me because we're so ill-equipped. We're ill-equipped at the best of times to deal with the kind of mental health crises we're going to be facing. So, um, you know, part of what I, I want to do is start the conversation as soon as possible so that uh, people are aware of um, what's coming at us uh, unrelentingly. Well, it seems like a, a, a clearly a worthwhile cause and, and you know, some interesting challenges are posed if you're a democracy in a country that is going through a mental health crisis because you're, you know, we, we are the government. And if we are troubled or confused or divided, um, that translates into our national identity and our action. Each of you, Corey and Rosa and Max, handle, you know, different sets of issues and have different ideas about areas where we need to begin healing. Um, they may tie into what Mary just said, or they may go into other areas. Let me just go, go through uh, each of you and get your reactions. Uh, let me start with our other guest, Max, and then I'll go to Corey and Rosa. Well, I agree. It's going to be a formidable task uh, to try to heal the nation and try to heal the world, especially because there is no indication uh, that Mary's uncle uh, is going to go away anytime soon. In fact, there is every indication that he is going to announce uh, another bid for the presidency in four years' time, whether he actually runs or not. 
almost doesn't matter at this point. It's just going to be a way for him to keep the spotlight on himself, which is all that he really cares about in the world. And that will make it much more difficult uh, for compromise to occur in Washington. But also, crucially, I would argue, it's going to make it more difficult uh, for President Biden to try to rebuild American leadership and credibility around the world. Because, you know, you can bet that other world leaders pay pretty close attention to U.S. politics, and they're going to be watching what the polls show. Now, if the polls show that President Biden is overwhelmingly popular, and at the moment that is in fact the case, he is already more popular today without having been inaugurated than Trump has ever been during the course of his entire presidency. But, you know, let's, you know, we don't know what's going to happen a year or two down the road. And if a year or two down the road, the polls suggest that, that President Biden is sagging in popularity and that Trump is surging, or imagine what would happen if there's a projected uh, matchup between Vice President Kamala Harris and former President Donald J. Trump, uh, you know, you could imagine all sorts of horrible scenarios where Trump would use racism and sexism and every otherism under the sun to try to claw his office back. I mean, we, we don't know what's going to happen, but my only point is that people will be looking at those kinds of matchups. People will be looking to see uh, what to what extent Trump has beguiled the American population, whether you know, the vast majority of Republicans remain committed to him and remain committed to his lost cause myth that he supposedly won the, the 2020 election. All those things will complicate uh, Biden's uh, attempts, not just to enact his agenda in Washington, but again, to, uh, to try to repair U.S. relationships abroad, because world leaders are going to be watching this and they're going to be very cognizant that, you know, Trump could come back. So why should I trust the United States? I think that's going to be the ultimate that's going to be a major handicap. On the other hand, of course, there's going to be huge relief around the world that they're not dealing with Trump anymore. And so there's going to be a lot of goodwill towards Biden on the part of our friends. And I think, uh, you know, a lot of attempts to accommodate him simply to bolster his position and to prevent the recurrence of isolationism. So, you know, I, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit here. I don't know how it's going to play out, but I, I think those are the factors at play. And it's going to be, you know, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be a heavy lift for 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 Biden uh, to repair all of the damage that, that Trump has done in just four short years. Corey, you know, from your perspective, with the issues you're most interested in, what, where, what are the areas of healing you think we need to triage? So I agree with what Max just said. I'm inclined to believe that uh, the greater, the more likely international reaction will be huge relief and a desire to lock the United States into agreements and patterns of behavior to, to increase the degree of difficulty that if President Trump returns, the US could come unmoored from the international order. Uh, so, so I think there will be lots of desire for constructive linkages but I'm a little bit worried that that may actually feed some of the popular discontent that led to President Trump's election in 2016. I, I don't share Mary's perspective that, that you know, the, the historical tide took us to Donald Trump. My own view is that he managed in 2016 to crest a wave um, a wave of people's concern about globalization and what trade and immigration 
um, meant for their lives at a time they were worried about their lives. By the way, those of you not watching this video, Mary's cat is making a fantastic appearance through the background, which is adding joy to a very serious conversation that we're having. Uh, so back to the point though, um, that I think, I think candidate Trump crested a wave and we are in a different place now. If you look at um, public polls of attitudes about trade and about, um, and about the economy and about immigration and about alliances, public attitudes have shifted. And I think we need to not extrapolate from the extremists at Trump rallies to believe that that's the entirety of the basis of why 72 million voters chose him. I actually think a lot of the strength of the economy in the first three years of the Trump administration, whether he deserves credit for that or not is a different question, but the public tends to give the president credit for the for economic strength. And I think the strength of the economy did somewhat change public attitudes and make, uh, make it possible for a Biden administration to help heal the country by reconnecting domestic and foreign policy and big questions about the international order. I actually think that's not gonna be a very hard lift because by solving the things that are scaring Americans during the pandemic, we will actually strengthen the bases for American power internationally. Rosa, what, what's, 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 what's your reaction to the priority list or to anything that's been said so far? So, I mean, I think I may have said this before. One thing that I, I still find a real puzzle, um, and I don't, I don't know how we would find the answer to this puzzle, is how deep the divisions in the in this country really are, um, and you know the the hypotheses vary, and 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 this this is relevant because what we need to do depends in part on how deep we think those divisions really are, and the hypotheses vary from they're extraordinarily deep. We had more than seventy million people who agree with Donald Trump in every respect. You know they're they're racist. Um, they don't think COVID is real. They think you you know you should can drink bleach. They think you can do whatever you know that whatever wacky thing he's ever said. They're in one hundred percent agreement, and they feel really strongly about it. And they feel so strongly about it that if pressed, they would pick up their guns and march off to their state capital and you know take the governor hostage and do whatever they needed to do. You know that that's that's one extreme version of the. Uh, uh, answer to the questions is the divisions are incredibly deep. Um, you know, another version is they're actually not that deep at all, that there's a, a small minority of Trump voters. Um, you know, maybe it's 5%, maybe it's 10%, maybe it's even 20%, um, but it's a distinct minority um, who, who really are in full agreement with the most extreme of the president's positions and really are willing to uh, do violence to to further his agenda, um, but that most other Republicans and Trump voters are not in that camp at all, um, that they are either minimally informed voters who kind of say, well, I think things are kind of okay, and gee, I don't know, you know, I think I heard a snippet of a speech he gave once that sounded kind of okay, and that's all they're doing, and I've been a Republican my whole life. Um, 
you know, or I care about the single issue where I think his policies are, are a bit more to my liking, um, et cetera. But that these are, and, and that some of them are, are uninformed, um, perhaps, but that, that there's not a very deep division. And, and, and the reason I throw that out there is because, you know, I think if, if the divisions are on the more extreme end, we've got a much bigger problem and Biden has a much bigger challenge. You know, that Biden, if, if the problem is we have 70 million sort of little proto-Trumps out there in the country, then Biden potentially faces an almost insurmountable governance challenge. Um, you know, and the threats of real political violence are not over and have to be taken seriously. And, and the, the threats of just utter political gridlock, best case, and, you know, constant opposition and, and Donald Trump going out there on Trump TV or whatever he, you know, whatever he decides his next platform is going to be accompanied by Sean Hannity, uh, you know, whether accompanied by foreign money or not, sort of irrelevant at this point, you know, it continues to sort of whip up division, violence, hostility, et cetera. You know, if, if, it's, if it's the more optimistic version, then it may be that sort of America shakes off its trance pretty quickly with a couple of years of reasonably sane, boring government, you know, boring, basically competent, not perfect, but not horrifically awful government by a president who will be, you know, competent, boring, not horrifically awful, um, may not be to everybody's liking, you know, but but it's basically okay. So I and I just don't, I'd be curious to know the rest of you, you know, what you think is the answer to that question, because I do think a lot depends on that. You know, whether whether we think that everyone is, whether we think that 70 million people are under a deep, deep spell that's not going to be broken, or whether we think that 70 million Americans, most of them really are not under a spell or they're under a very shallow and easily broken spell. Because, because I, you know, I, I, I do think regardless of what the answer to that question is that trying to directly confront the, the sort of disinformation machinery that has fueled whether it's a deep spell or a shallow spell is going to be absolutely vital and, and um, and and I think beyond that, you know, I, I could start rattling off a list of other things I think are useful, but how I would pri prioritize them, I think, depends on on the answer to that question. And I don't know that answer. Um, Mary, besides having seen a glimpse of your cat here, so rather than asking a question, maybe you want to react. I'll start where Rosa left off, because I agree. I think that is that is an extraordinarily important question. And I, I touched on that a little bit when I said that I, I do believe that um, most people, once uh, President Biden is in office, will say what most of us have said after an election, even if we didn't like the results. Oh, well, Ronald Reagan is my president, unfortunately, and hopefully he won't be for eight years, but he was. Um, and that's just the way it is. I think that will be the the reaction of most people. Um, I, I saw some stats recently say that you're much more likely to change a spouse in the course of your lifetime than you are to change a political party. It's some, some insane number, like 6% of people change their political party. So most of us are knee-jerk Democrats or Republicans. So so that that is good and, news. And um, Max, Max is special. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. Most, I divorced right. both my first wife and my first political party. I, I'll have you know. <laughs> yeah, that's... That is highly um, unusual. I'm, I'm one for two. Um, anyway, um, the bad news is that 
for uh, you know, I I think that in any any society, there are twenty two to twenty eight percent of the population that's the worst among us, right? You know, the un unrepentant racist, misogynist, white supremacist, etc. And you know, part of the uh, purpose of liberal democracy is to contain them. Um, but from twenty sixteen to twenty eighteen, a hundred percent of the federal government represented those people, and I think those attitudes were allowed to metastasize to a greater portion of the population than it typically would. Uh, so, so that's that problem is exacerbated and allowed to continue because Republican leadership is so craven in its unwillingness to put a stop to this insanity. You know, Donald should have been shut down as soon as the election was called, but they're refusing to, uh, you know, stand up and do the right thing, which is, as Max said, going to complicate things for the incoming Biden administration, because if Donald is allowed to play a role, if he is allowed to remain relevant to a degree that has not been afforded any other uh, outgoing president, then we're in trouble. And we're also in trouble because a large, a large part of what's going to determine that is how the media treats him. And so far, the media haven't done the best job. There are several questions that 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 strike me. Um... One is constitutional, and I will get to it when I get to Rosa, who is responsible for the Constitution <laughs> um, and and all of its flaws. Um, uh, but before that, you know, for, for Max and, and maybe also for Corey, when I listen to this, I think of the healing that we have to do around the world. And, you know, there are a bunch of people who are like, yeah, no, I want America to go back to normal. There are a bunch of people around the world who sort of you know, are hoping for that boring, um, not horrific government that Rosa described. Um, but to, you know, to the extent that we function as we are currently functioning, um, they're going to see a lot of echoes of this period, and they're not going to know what to make of America. Is it really possible to heal American foreign policy while this kind of polarized it's it's polarization doesn't even describe it fully there are two disconnected worlds that the united states government is 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 representing right now they they literally believe in different laws of physics different mathematics different history different you know i mean they're not the same plan they believe in different events the same thing happens in front of them and half of them see one thing and half of them see something else how does that country heal the problems it's got in foreign policy, or do people just look at it and say, you know, um, hegemon, heal thyself? Yeah, I mean, I was that was, was for actually, you. that was for you, Corey. I just wanted you. To oh, I appreciate it, David. I took it as such <laughs> because you use the word hegemon. That's that's Corey's favorite song. <laughs> yeah, it is. Go ahead, Max. Sorry. Wait, was that for me or for Corey? For you. Okay. No, Even just the use Corey of the word, word just the, the use of the word hegemon is for okay. Corey. Corey okay. is in charge of all things hegemonic. Okay. I, I'm probably going to have to pay royalties if I <laughs> say the word hegemon. But um, no, I mean, I you know I agree that that you're you're kind of laying it out, and I think it's going to be, uh, you know, difficult for people to have faith in America in the same way in the future as they had in the past. And I mean, I include myself as you know somebody who was probably naively optimistic about America and, and had too much faith in this country. And now 
just using me personally as a barometer, my faith in America has been deeply shaken. And, and I say that as somebody who's still a proud, patriotic, loyal American. But, you know, I can't imagine what millions of people around the world are thinking, watching this shit show uh, going on in real time. And I mean, think about the damage that is done to American standing by our mishandling of the coronavirus. I mean, think of the fact that we're probably going to have more dead from the coronavirus than we had from World War II uh, by probably by the end of January, probably more than 400,000 dead. I mean, this is just so horrific uh, and so debilitating, not only just from, this, from the horrors of all these uh, people dying and being debilitated, but simply from the gross mismanagement that it reveals. And it just feels like the culmination of decades of growing ineptitude on the part of the U.S. government. And, you know, it's hard to argue that our record abroad has been uh, one of, un, you know, uh, of nonstop success. I mean, we've had more than our share of screw-ups too uh, abroad, you know, whether in Afghanistan or Iraq or uh, many other places. And, you know, all this is happening while American relative power is waning. China is growing stronger. Uh, you know, you have Russia back in the game as, as an economic pygmy, but, but still a, a military giant. Uh, and so there's, you know, I think the world has been shifting away from the unipolarity of the post-Cold War period in any case. And I think what we've seen in the last four years has just accelerated that trend. And I, I mean, I still believe it's incredibly important for America to lead the world. And I, I'm glad that Biden and Blinken and Jake Sullivan and the other folks who are going to be running American foreign policy agree. But, you know, it's going to be, like, like I said earlier, it's going to be a heavy lift to convince the rest of the world to go along because they've what, what Trump has done is he's basically unleashed the beast. I mean, I think people have known for a long time that there were these isolationist and protectionist uh, uh, trends in American popular opinion, but they've never been this dominant and, and never been this represented in the White House uh, in, you know, probably the last century. And now, you know, Trump has shown how you can appeal to the American public. And I think it's a, you know, it's, it's a terrifying glimpse of of, of, you know, the horror that can lie beneath the relatively placid surface of American life. And again, people are not going to forget that. I mean, I think we really have to hope, as Rosa says, for, you know, boring competence from the Biden folks. And but, you know, it's it's I think it's going to take more than four years of boring competence to undo the damage that has been done. And, and uh, just the, 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 you know, just the lasting damage, I think, to American credibility, because we've been shown to be both, uh, you know, amoral, if not immoral, but also deeply incompetent. And that's, that's, a, that's a debilitating one-two combination. You know, Corey, before you start, one thing that strikes me um, about what Max just said um, is that those who are expecting a transformation from all of these things may be disappointed on several levels, because the Biden administration has already announced that there will be no trade deals um until we you know revitalize american manufacturing um that has has made you know bought, you know made in the usa uh, strong you know kind of stronger than it was as a principal under trump who talked the game but didn't follow it uh yes i agree with you on that david we are likely to have a whole lot of leftist nonsense out of the Biden administration about Trump policy. And I will just remind everybody that Barack Obama campaigned in 2008 on destroying NAFTA because it was bad for the United States. 
Yeah. If I, if I can interject, I've said this, but like five years ago on this podcast, but I was in the Clinton administration when, and just came back from a trip to China when Bill Clinton said, I wish I were running against our China policy. This is, this is not new. The only, the only other interjection I would make, Corey, is, is that since this is what Trump has been saying for the last four years, I'm not sure we can call it leftist nonsense. So I would just want to cut the adjective. Where you are, Rosa, which is that uh, Republicans uh, are typically free traders yeah. and the international economy has been structured by us advantageously. So what's different is Republicans have adopted uh, a fair amount of the nonsense, but Biden's not pushing back against it. As David said, he's leaning into it. And that suggests to me that he doesn't understand economics very well, because we actually have to not just, first of all, human manufacturing is not going to solve problems of unemployment in the United States. We're the innovators who have made machine manufacturing drive away America's jobs. And China's just about to have the fun experience the United States has had in the last 20 years in that regard. The salvation of the American economy isn't by America, it's innovation. Um, and that connects to a point I wanted to make about Max's concern for the country, which is, I almost never disagree with Max on any subject of military history of American politics. On this one, I do have a slight difference in him. And I think it comes from uh, being a historian of America in the 19th century, uh, because I think you are underestimating the number of times we have had bad leaders in the country, have made disastrous choices, we somehow got our leadership back after Smoot-Hawley tariffs and after the Coolidge administration. And I grant you that, um, that uh, we weren't dominant in the international order in those periods. But even in the time when we have been dominant in the international order, uh, think of the wrecking ball we took to the Bretton Woods financial system uh, in the 1970s or other way, the Vietnam War was uh, even more consequential to how countries looked at the United States than the Iraq War of 2003 was. So I think we shouldn't underestimate the aspiration of uh, our allies and like-minded countries to give us the chance to rebuild uh, American power because they understand to an even deeper extent than we do how much worse the alternatives are. And so um, I, I actually think uh, people are going to be putting, they're not even going to make us hit slow softballs over the fat part of the plate. They're going to put a great big softball on a t-ball stand and let us swing until we can get to first base because the genius of the American dominated international order that we and our friends built after World War II is the fact that it's not just good for the United States, it's the best bargain anybody else can get too 
from a strong power. So they're going to be trying to help us get back on track because they're scared of what the international order looks like if we remain as terrible as we have been under President Trump's tenure. And one last thing I would say is that on the coronavirus casualties in the United States, I, I share Max's view that this may be the most shocking thing, which is the number of Americans voluntarily following potentially fatal courses of action because they want to prove that liberals can't wear them, make them wear a mask or some other foolishness. And it reminds me that we're the country of people who moved into Comanche territory voluntarily. And that's both a terrifying thing about who we are as a body politic, but also kind of revealing about why we have such dominance in the international order. I just want to say here as a um, as a brief footnote, and then I'll turn to to, to Rose and, and and Mary. But um, for those of you who wonder why we always uh, uh, enjoy Corey's uh, return to nineteenth century American history, I was looking at BillMoyers.com, Bill Moyers' website, and he had an article by historian Heather Cox Richardson. Oh, she's great. And she's great. And she was talking about the elections of 1884 and 1888. And I want to read two sentences from her, what she wrote. She wrote, horrified, the Republicans flooded the country with stories of how Democrats were socialists who had attacked the rich by ending the legislation that protected business. If Democrats continued to control the government, Republicans said they would destroy America. In 1888, they suppressed Democratic votes and created modern political financing as they hit up businessmen for major donations. Despite their best efforts, voters reelected Cleveland by about 100,000 votes, but Republicans managed to eke out a win for their candidate, Benjamin Harrison, in the Electoral College. It's so, you know, the 19th century is not 150 years ago or 140 years ago. It, so much of what happened then it is happening now. Like last There's week. a source that William Faulkner said, the past isn't dead, it isn't even past. Exactly. Well, and, and I'm glad to have gotten Faulkner into this. Rosa, the question that I had for you, and this relates to something that I actually saw Mary, Mary was tweeting about. Mary, Mary was tweeting about how her uncle is the only guy who can gaslight himself. Um, uh, uh, and was, this was a, talking about his degree of self-delusion. We've been talking here a lot about how, you know, most Americans believe this and most Americans believe that. But in this Constitution, which you screwed up, Rosa. I know, I'm sorry. Um, uh, as of right now, the Republican majority is being elected by 17% of our voters in the Senate. In other words, it doesn't matter what the majority thinks necessarily. If the Senate of the United States is elected by 17% of the voters, uh, and they believe something else or predominantly believe something else. This is a broken system. Why did you design it that way? <laughs> I, I shouldn't have, David, and I, I regret. I regret all of my actions in 1787, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> and if I could go back and do it all over again, I, I, I would not do this. I, I actually think that, that you know, we've, we've had a lot of conversations about the Constitution before, um, but I think the, 
the single biggest thing that would be a shock to the framers themselves if they woke up today would be how hard it has become for us to amend the constitution. I don't think they predicted, you know, I mean, well, let me take a step back, right? Um, you can say a lot of bad things about the framers as well as a lot of good things about the framers. But even if we stick to merely all the good things about the framers, I, I think it's fair to say that they were extremely concerned about preventing the kind of state capture that we have seen in the last few decades in this country. I think that however much from their perspective, the two senators per state, when I say state capture, I mean, I mean state as in the state, not as in Rhode Island or Massachusetts or Virginia kinds of states. Um, and I think however much in 1787, they may have thought it made a lot of sense to, to use the two senators per, per state rule um, as a way to break up concentrations of power. What has happened over time, because of a variety of factors that I don't think they could possibly have predicted, is that it has actually fueled and accelerated that, that the very types of capture that they, they would have lamented greatly. And, and the, the trouble is, once you get into this kind of uh, cycle, right, that there's nothing inherent, there's nothing inherent that they could have predicted in 1787 and that would have said, oh, um, rural states are going to be more affiliated with the Republican Party than primarily urban states, for instance. You know, who would have known, right, um, how exactly all of this would play out? But, but you get this kind of cascade effect uh, that's been going on the last few decades where the, the further apart that, and this goes back into my, my first set of questions about how deep is this ideological divide? I still feel like I don't quite know. I want to think that Mary's right, but I, I'm not sure. Sometimes I get more paranoid, but, but that as this rift between um, the states, the, the less populated states and the more populated states um, gets more and more stark, uh, that because the Senate has so much control over both presidential appointments and most importantly, judicial nominations, that, that that shift gets locked in a little bit more with each successive election, right? Um, so it's not something where the ability to self-correct is, which, the, which I think the framers thought they were building in an ability to self-correct in the constitution. Um, but instead the way some of the very clever things that they came up with that they thought would prevent the situation we have now are actually beginning to operate to worsen it. Um, you know, it's a really hard conundrum because I, I simultaneously think we have clearly reached a point where beyond the point where viewed from the perspective of democratic legitimacy theory, you know, viewed from a political theory perspective, if you're not like us or steeped in the, the constitution is awesome, it's wonderful, it's perfect, how, why else would it have lasted so darn long if it wasn't perfect? If you're not steeped in that, if you're looking at it from the outside, you say, boy, this doesn't look like a democracy anymore. It doesn't even look close. You know, that this looks like the kind of country that if America were looking at it from outside, America would be criticizing for its democratic deficits. Um, I think we, we are well past that point. That being said, the solution is very far from obvious because it's so difficult to amend the constitution. That's not gonna change, you know, so I, I on my darker days, as you know, I worry that we're sort of locked into a democratic death spiral at this point, um, where you know Joe Biden's election and a few years of boring normal government will be the 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 exception, uh, and we'll go right back. If it's not Donald Trump, it will be someone else, much like Donald Trump, next time around, uh, and we will find it very very hard to get out of this democratic death death spiral, which will in turn 
condemn us to decades, if not centuries, of increasing international irrelevance. Um, well, that's just the kind of upbeat cheer that we've come to expect from you. And I think you're absolutely right. The founders would be shocked by how difficult it is to amend the Constitution. Whether that would be the thing that shocked them most about us, uh, or whether it might be the song WAP by Cardi B and Megan the Stallion, I'm not sure because that I don't, you know, I just don't see how George Washington would deal with that song. But um, Mary, and then around to everybody else, uh, we've just got a couple of minutes left. I'd like to do one of those kind of lightning round things. If you had Joe Biden's ear, I would pick one thing that you would tell him that you think is essential to helping to heal. America or some part of it that's important to you? And then the same question for everybody. Mary. Um, I read this recently. It's not original to me, but uh, do everything at once. Don't wait. Don't play by rules that are, are no longer uh, valid. Um, <laughs> the menagerie has broken free. Wow. And, for those of uh, you who are, not, who are not seeing this on video, maybe, Corey, you could describe Mary's what you being just attacked saw. by a bird. A magnificent red-tailed bird just perched, showing off those red tail feathers on Mary's shoulder, and is clearly a domesticated number because. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever seen that bird before, Mary? I haven't. I'm as surprised as you are. That that would be upsetting if just a bird shows up one day. I think it's a sign. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was sitting in the corner whistling the theme song to Xena Warrior Princess. So I figured it was better to have him over here. Quiet. Wow. I'd love to <laughs> yeah. hear that. I'd love to hear that. <laughs> um, yeah. Because honestly, I don't think there is one thing. I, I think there's so much that we cannot take a one thing at a time approach uh, to, uh, to getting out of, of this mess. Um, and I think if he does that, um, he will restore some faith. Um, you know, as we've been discussing, there's every reason for uh, a lot of us to feel demoralized um, and terrified um, and and betrayed. So I think if if he kind of comes in and um, just makes decisions immediately that are going to have uh, even short term impacts and doesn't pretend anymore that, um, you know, we can work with uh, the other side that seems to be interested in nothing but raw power and obstruction. I think that that would go a long way to giving us some confidence that things will be accomplished in the next four years. Okay, brief answer from everybody. Mary, of course, is the kid who, when you say you get three wishes or first wishes, well, I'd like a million wishes. Yeah. So, so when I say, well, yeah, right. So what do you say, you know, what's the one thing? The three wish restriction was pretty arbitrary, David. No, it is. Well, it I, is. I was talking just in terms of strategy, get in and, you know, write all the executive orders, make all the appointments, sorry. No, no. I, I'll learn. I, no, no, I agree with you. I think, it, I think it makes some sense. I honestly think that we shouldn't accept artificial norms or negotiate with ourselves. Do as much as you can do. But Max, go on. Well, uh, one immediate thing that, that President Biden should do or President-elect Biden should do is to appoint Michelle Flournoy. Oh, yeah. Secretary of Defense. And I'm kind of puzzled that he's not doing so and, and kind of allowing this crazy far left campaign against her uh, to continue. But 
you know, I think appointing her in, in general, just I would say what he's already doing, and he doesn't really need my advice for this because this is what comes naturally to Joe Biden, but to rule from the center, uh, to be, you know, pretty moderate and to generally to ignore the ultra progressive wing of his party, which I think is his natural instinct, what he's doing anyway, but I think it's the right thing to do because it gives him a chance to uh, bring over the reconcilable elements uh, who may have supported Trump in the past and into the conversation that Mary and Rosa had in particular. I mean, I agree with what Mary said. It's about probably, you know, 28, 30% of the population, which those are just the dead enders. You got to write them off. But there's still a lot of swing between that 28% and the 47% or whatever it was who voted for Trump. And I think a lot of those people are gettable. And if Biden just you know, carries out his instincts to govern from the center and has a fair degree of competence, I think he can, he can change the poisonous dynamics of, of U.S. politics. Just think of how nerdy this show is, that when somebody says, pick Michelle Flournoy, you get here whoops. <laughs> You hear whoops of joy from the crowd. I think that um, was Rosa. Yeah, it was Rosa. But yeah, no, that's as nerdy as it gets. Anyway, Corey. Uh, I would give advice similar to Max's, which is govern for the whole country. Uh, because I think, uh, as Mary mentioned earlier on, the viciousness with which President Trump only governed on behalf of his voters uh, made oh, even did that. I think he was yeah. going on behalf of himself. Made the president <laughs> seem um, like a a one man one vote one time kind of prize, and elevated in importance control of the national government in a way that is divisive for the country. Uh, and governing for everyone both expands the electoral possibilities for Democrats, but it also really dials down the existential anxiety about elections and puts them back in a proper context of, as, as Rosa said, and is the bumper sticker on my car, make government boring and competent again. A long bumper sticker. <laughs> I like it. Okay, Rosa, last, last answer. The other thing I would add is I think I think Biden needs to go big, and this is maybe related to to Mary's point. Um, I I think he should go big on uh, you know we're looking at Great Depression levels of misery in this country right now, uh, both in terms of the health direct health impact of COVID and in terms of the economic impact of COVID, the impact on jobs, et cetera that this is definitely not a time to be fiddling around on the margins. This is a time for big, bold experiments. Um, and one of them in particular that I would really love to see him move forward on is a really ambitious national service program um, for two reasons. One, I think that you can link that to job creation. You can link that to sort of immediate economic stimulus in terms of coming up with you know, matching people who need jobs and who need an income to tasks that the nation urgently needs to get done. Uh, and there are both plenty of unemployed and underemployed Americans, and there are plenty of tasks that urgently need to get done. And if we're gonna throw money at stuff, let's throw money at things that actually put Americans to work doing meaningful things. So number one, I think it's uh, beneficial for those reasons. But number two, you know, I think it gets at those more subtle uh, and harder to quantify questions about the degree of division in this country. Um, you know, we, we tend to sort of romanticize the World War II generation 
uh, and we romanticize the draft in certain ways, which is completely bizarre to me in all kinds of levels. Um, but but leaving that aside, I mean, I think that the reason we romanticize is we think of this as this forcing mechanism that pushed very different people from all over the country with all different kinds of backgrounds together to work towards something that was larger than the, them, themselves and their parochial identities, whether they were geographic or religious or ideological. Uh, and there is some truth to that. I don't think that, you know, fighting catastrophic wars is a, uh, you know, <laughs> that's not the you know, let, let's not try that as a deliberate mechanism for uh, coming up with a way to get people to fight, fight for something that is bigger than themselves. But I do think that a national service program that has as a built-in component by design, we're gonna put you with people who are different from you working on projects that benefit the nation as a whole, that that is part of what we need to do to sort of rekindle or, or spread, because it's not, it hasn't gone out that, that spirit of uh, there's something bigger than all of us, um, but it certainly, it, it needs some nurturing right now. And I think, I think that helping to, to spread that spirit of, oh yeah, you know, we may look different, we may come from different parts of the country, we may have really different assumptions about all kinds of so-called culture war issues and so on, but getting this road built or this hospital built or these, or these children, helping them become literate, uh, et cetera, you know, whatever it may be that we all care about those things. And that in turn creates that platform where it then becomes possible to talk about some of the issues where people really do disagree, but have it be a, we're all friends here. We're on the same side discussion, not a, I hate you and I'm bringing my AR-15 to the state house kind of discussion. Yeah, no, those aren't those, those, the latter kind are not good. Well, look, it's a big job of work. Uh, it is a process that is just beginning. It may not begin for a while yet, as the impediments thrown up by the president and his party seem to, you know, be dominating our attention. But soon it'll be January. Soon there'll be a new president. Soon these issues are going to be the issues that are on uh, the minds of people who can actually do something about them. And we're lucky to have a conversation like this among four smart people who have ideas about how to fix it. And we'll continue to have conversations like that. Uh, in the interim, I would like to thank you, Mary, for joining us and your bird and your cat. And I would like to thank you, Max. And I would like to thank you, Rosa and Corey. And uh, if you want to hear more of what we've got coming, Go to the dsrnetwork.com and, uh, you know, go to the shop, buy a mask or something as a Christmas present, buy memberships for people as uh, Christmas presents. What could be better than helping the deep state? We're still going to need it as we go into this new year. Uh, thanks, everybody, and stay healthy. Bye bye. <laughs>